Hey, Real Talkers, right off the top, I want to give a shout out to our Real Talk patrons, those of you that support us every month on Patreon by making a contribution. We told you a short time ago, you're the ones that paid for these fantastic new microphones. And in this episode, you're the ones that are supporting the independent journalism of Sarah Loriniuk, who's just returned from another trip to Ukraine, where she's been telling the stories of war from the front lines. This interview wouldn't be possible without you. It sure as hell wouldn't be possible without her. As she talks to us about the changes she's seen in Ukraine, including the attitudes of the people over the past couple of years. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Vladimir Putin says that uh, the West risks nuclear war if it uh, makes good on musings about sending troops to Ukraine. This uh, part of a two-hour address delivered by the Russian president, his annual uh, State of the Nation address, Vladimir Putin saying that things could ramp up even more. This just passed the two-year mark of Russia's invasion on that sovereign country. Coming up in just a moment, we'll check in with journalist Sarah Loriniak. You may remember she joined us about a year ago as we were marking the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. She has continued to travel there to report from the front lines. She's a self-funded, independent journalist doing incredible work, and we're grateful that she's going to join us coming up in just a second. I want to let you know that this episode of Real Talk would not be happening without the support of Business Career College, and they've got a clear and focused message for those of you that are looking for a rewarding and high-paying career but you don't have a university degree. It doesn't matter. You can get started as an insurance professional with Business Career College today. In Canada, insurance agents are making great salaries, uh, oftentimes up near six figures after just a short time in the industry. All you need to do to get into the mix is take an approved course and then pass a licensing exam. Business Career College offers industry-leading courses in life and property insurance, casualty insurance, plus they've got expert instructors that are passionate about helping you launch your new career. Right now, a great deal for real talkers because you're hearing about it here. You can save 15% on any Business Career College insurance course. Just use the code REALTALK. That's all one word, REALTALK, when you get started today at businesscareercollege.com. Sarah Loriniak is an uh, independent journalist, but you've read her bylines. You've seen her work probably all around the world. Uh, She joins us live from London, where she's recently returned after uh, reporting from the front lines of that war in Ukraine. We're grateful to have her joining the show. Sarah, welcome back, and and thanks for making time for us. Good morning, Ryan. Where do we find you specifically? You're back in London. This is your your home base. How, How recently were you in Ukraine? Uh, I got back on Sunday night. Um, so uh, right now I'm in the offices at The Economist where I work most of the time. Um, but yes, as a freelancer in Ukraine. Yeah, it's really uh, an interesting endeavor that you've undertaken that doesn't feel like a, a, a word with enough magnitude to describe what you've been doing. But but you've got your, your so-called day job. You've got your regular job as a working journalist. But there has been something uh, about this war in Ukraine that really resonated with you that, that has prompted you to travel there several times, uh, producing really remarkable reports, including a lot of the images that we're going to be sharing uh, through the course of this interview. What was it? Uh, can you, for the people that maybe didn't see your first appearance on Real Talk a year ago, what was it about this war, about this conflict that so strongly resonated with you? Uh, I mean, it's a personal 
uh, endeavor for me in, in some ways because uh, all of my family came from Ukraine ar- around the turn of, of World War II, either just before or just after. And I know what the impact of war can be. And it occurred to me, I've reported on other conflicts as well, but it occurred to me how easily our family had become un-Ukrainian. We, we all consider ourselves Canadian. None of us spoke the language anymore. And that's an, entirely a part of what this war is meant to do. It's meant to displace Ukrainians from the country. They moved to other countries. In a generation or two, they're assimilated into those other countries. And I don't consider myself Ukrainian. I go there, I have a Ukrainian last name, but that's that's kind of the extent of it. And it felt like there was some duty I had to return and to tell the stories of the people who are being impacted now. Hmm. Uh, As mentioned, we spoke to you just after the one year mark of Russia's invasion on Ukraine. About a year has passed since we've last spoken. You've been back uh, to that country several times. How would you say things have changed for Ukrainians? It's interesting. Over the last year, things have changed so fundamentally. Um, I think the first year of war was really characterized by that really spunky kind of humorous approach that Ukrainians had. And it's what really drew the world into following this war because, you know, they had the memes, they had the bravery. And it's, it's not to say that any of that's gone away. But in the second year, it's taken on really a different tone. There's a lot of hope that's been lost. There hasn't been any big wins by the Ukrainian military on, on the front lines of this land battle anyway. Uh, in a very long time, not really since the fall, winter of 2022. And so hope is slipping away from people. And they're realizing that this war isn't going to be short-lived. This is just their life now. So the things that they had to get used to that they thought might be short-term are now much longer-term. And they're realizing that they have to start remembering their history in the midst of all of this. One of the places I visited uh, was the northeastern city of Kharkiv. That's the second biggest city in Ukraine. And one of the women I spoke with actually brought me to this memorial for the children that have died in the war. And every time there's a bombing in Kharkiv, people bring flowers to this memorial that's been erected in the last six months. It's just ugh, a constant pain. Uh, and then there you can see the flags that are in Maidan in Kiev. And it's just the sheer amount of, of human loss. And it's a pain that will go on for generations. You see there the wall of soldiers uh, and their faces. This used to be a memorial that was actually kept up to date by the government pre-2022 when the war was a much smaller scale. Uh, it used to be that they put up all the, the faces of the soldiers that had died. But now people have just have had to go and put up the faces of people they've lost personally. And you can't find um, an empty inch of space on that wall anymore. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of photos that have just been hung by families, friends, and and other members of their units. Hmm. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky revealing just a few days ago that uh, 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed in this war uh, with Russia. How did the number resonate with you? For some people, I've heard them say that they had underestimated it. Others say they had overestimated it. Uh, what did 31,000 do to you? I would say that I have no way of, of properly estimating the number of, of dead Ukrainian soldiers. Mm-hmm. However, when I talk to soldiers in those frontline cities, um, the ones who are going out into the trenches who are you know, recovering bodies from the field of battle. Certainly the death toll has weighed on them. And certainly that's shaping what it looks like to be a soldier there now. Because when everyone volunteered and went in, you know, the spring of 2022, they knew what they were doing. They knew if they didn't go, you know, Russian tanks would keep rolling towards Kiev and they would lose their country and people would be raped and murdered. And they understood this. And so they went, it's different now. Now it's like a stalemate war. And they just are in this constant state of loss, 
where you hear about, you know, battles around cities like Bakhmut or Avdivka, and it's just tens of thousands of people dying, and they don't see why anymore. You know what I'm saying? It's not, it's not everyone who feels this way, but none of them want to become cannon fodder. None of them want to die and feel like their lives meant nothing. And so you sense a different tone when you talk to the soldiers now. It's it's a bit of desperation. Some some people have become so desperate that um, soldiers told me uh, a number of people had responded to classified ads posted by women with significant disabilities that if you pay them, they'll let you marry them. Mm. Uh, and because this is one of the ways that you can get out of service in Ukraine is if you have to care for a loved one with a severe disability. It's that level of fear that some men have. And I'm not to say everyone. There's many soldiers there that are still fighting bravely. However, even they are coming to accept that their lives don't look like they used to, that they, even when they return to their homes for a brief, you know, two week vacation, as they're, you know, kind of called, uh, those lives feel foreign to them now. And they're beginning to accept that it's unlikely they'll ever be able to really return there. Um, It's a very different situation from when I've visited soldiers in the past. And I wouldn't say that that's specific to the soldiers either, because in, you know, communities, if a man walks down the street, the police can hand him uh, mobilization papers and tell him he has to go to a recruitment office tomorrow. And so men are actively hiding in their houses so that they don't have to go to war. Is that really what's happening And it's happening dividing there? communities. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, that's how you get recruited because people might not live where the government thinks you live. So yeah, it's actively just happening on the street. You can walk down the street. They ask to see your identification and you can be handed recruitment papers. I spoke to one pastor who'd actually managed to get out of uh, service because he's serving his community in a different way. Um, but it's not a permanent excused uh, situation from the military. It's like, for now, we don't need you. Um, for now, we'll let you go on with your life of serving your community this way. But we can't say that we won't need you later. But he described, um, you know, having a parishioner come to him and ask for a ride home because he didn't want to walk down the sidewalk home. Mm. It's dividing society because men you know, who come back from the front line, see these, you know, in their eyes, cowardly men um, not going to fight for their country, but you can't blame them. Why would you want to go and die um, and lose your life in a war that none of these people ever wanted? It's uh, I'm just wrapping my mind around what you're saying. You try to walk miles in in the shoes that these people are wearing. I was in an Uber the other day in Edmonton, Canada, and uh, struck up a conversation with my driver. Uh, My driver turns out he's uh, Ukrainian. Uh, he's been here for a couple of months. He's a dentist. Um, obviously, his entire life is turned upside down. Uh, he apologized for his poor English. I, I thought his English was flawless, as a matter of fact, and I let him know as much. Um, and uh, to the degree that I felt was appropriate, I was asking him how he's doing and, and how his family is doing that remains in Ukraine and, and whether or not he ever sees himself going back there. And you could see the, the pain in his face through that rearview mirror. Um, he acknowledged that he doesn't think that he will ever go back. He acknowledged that he could not go back uh, right now. And one day he hopes to open a dental practice um, in Edmonton. He was noting the, the significant you know, Ukrainian community in Edmonton and the fact that he had found some people that he could uh, break bread with from time to time. But it wasn't lost on me. I honestly walked through the rest of that afternoon thinking I've been thinking about that guy since, to be honest with you, um, and realizing how many uh, millions of people's lives have been impacted in major ways uh, by this. What sense do you get from uh, Ukrainian people uh, about the the West's commitment to this? Uh, I mean, I know what Vladimir Putin said this morning, threatening nuclear war, this on the heels of the comments from Emmanuel Macron in France. 
who had suggested maybe that NATO needs to send troops into Ukraine. Uh, Canada and the U.S. say they support Ukraine, but I know many people believe that they could or should do more. Can you take us into that? I think that that's a big part of where the hope slipping away for Ukrainians comes from is because, you know, their their ferocity, which with they fought, it was like, OK, but we have the rest of the world behind us. And so this is OK. And they'll support us and they won't leave us. And really, up until I visited, I visited in September as well. When I talked to people about slipping support, they didn't believe it. They were like, no, that'll never happen. Um, and now it's happening. And now I've never seen Ukrainians so involved in uh, American politics. All you could talk about was them, you know, how, how the House is holding up this aid package, et cetera, et cetera. But it's demoralizing to them because m- multiple people, civilian and military, talked about how they felt like they had to dance now for the for the West to understand, you know, it's it's not enough to suffer every day in a boring way that isn't new. You know, it doesn't matter that there's missile attacks every day. It doesn't matter that, you know, hundreds or thousands of people die on the front lines every day because it's just the same every day. And so it doesn't make headlines the way it did. Um, it, it is demoralizing and a big part of why things I think have changed. But to your point about how you kind of forget, um, Ukrainians are, are very, very resilient and they are filled with that, like, let's just get on with life attitude. And so it's not like they're sitting there whining and complaining. I specifically ask them questions about this, but sometimes they allow you to actually lose track of how much their lives have changed and how much they've been impacted because they they do just get on with it. They're like, this is life. We will keep going. Businesses are open, even in Kramatorsk, which is a frontline city. And I was sitting on a train back from Mikolaev, and it was a night train. And this woman came in with this man, and they left with three bottles of wine. And I'd wanted to go to sleep, and I was kind of annoyed when she came back quite drunk, to be, to be frank. Right. I didn't say anything, but then she kept trying to talk to me, and she only spoke Ukrainian. And I eventually got out my Google Translate because she insisted she wanted to talk to me. And she brought, brought out this box. And she opened it for me and it was a Medal of Valor. And the reason that she was on the train was because she'd just gone down to meet her husband's unit uh, to get the Medal of Valor and see them and talk to them because her husband had just died. And it just brings you right back into like, oh, yeah, every single person in this country, they might be going about their lives. But the pain, the loss is extraordinary. Um, I've got uh, Kenzie in our live chat here on YouTube when I when I invoked the story of the Uber driver and she says, oh, he must be a deserter. Um, I know that you've spoken to a ton of people uh, in the east. Uh, Can can you talk to us about attitudes around people who have left and and how they're perceived and how people wrestle with those decisions? And, And can you help us understand? The attitudes there? Yeah, I would correct that. He's not necessarily a deserter just because uh, he's not in the country. That's that's definitely not necessarily the case. And in fact, it's very unlikely to be the case because a deserter wouldn't be able to likely get across a border, uh, at least not easily. There are people you can pay to have these things happen. But many people left the country legally, had excuses uh, from military service for valid reasons. But the other thing I would say is that there's divisions that are coming up in Ukrainian society now. There's no longer that existential threat that envelops the entire country. Now it's like, okay, between who stayed and who left the country, uh, families are divided. Now, I mean, none of most men couldn't not could not leave the country because of, um, you know, they were kept for mobilization. And so many women left with their children. Two years later, if they haven't seen each other, both of those parts of the family are now existing in completely different worlds and they're going on about their lives. There's divisions there. There's divisions between, you know, some women have come back and there's divisions between the people who stayed the whole time 
and people who didn't. And there's divisions between men who served and men who didn't. It's, it's, there are divisions really bubbling up in communities and they have a hard time seeing past their different experiences because they've gone through pain. They've all experienced loss, but it's not the same. And I think there's a lot of judgment for, for each other. I think that it will require a lot of grace for Ukrainians to see past their differences because any of these choices you made, whether you stayed, whether you left, whether you fought, whether you didn't, they were passionate choices made, right? They weren't low stakes choices. Mm. So people care very much and feel very strongly about them. So I think it will will create divisions within Ukrainian society. We're talking to uh, Sarah Lariniak. If, if you're just joining us, she's a senior producer at The Economist. Uh, you, you've likely read her work in The Guardian, uh, in The Walrus. Uh, she's reported on climate for CBC uh, and for Canada land as well. Sarah, when we come back from a quick break, I want to ask you about, you said this is personal. Um, what's it like for you as a journalist to, to, to arrive in Ukraine and to leave and then to come back and then to leave again, if you wouldn't mind telling us. Plus, uh, an audio doc- documentary of yours just aired this morning on The Current uh, on sexual violence in Ukraine. And I'd like to get into that with you, if you don't mind. We're talking to a, a fearless and accomplished journalist right now who has put it all on the line to tell the stories from the front line. Sarah Lariniak, our guest, on this episode of Real Talk, which is made possible uh, by partners of ours like our friends at Friesen Brothers, who want to remind you that the first of the month is coming up, which means 10% off grocery purchases, all grocery purchases over $75 at all of their 16 locations. But remember, that's 15% off. Did I say 10? 15% off on the first day of every month. A minimum $75 purchase. And then there's also senior specials, different days at different locations. Just ask your friendly Friesen Brothers staff the next time you pop in. Don't forget they've got Mike's Meals, the Honey Dill Chicken Sandwich going on right now. They're wrapping up Heart Month at Friesen Brothers. Uh, A great opportunity to get some recipes from their Red Seal chefs on heart-healthy eats for you and the whole family. Friesen Brothers is all about family, still family-owned, coming up on 75 years. What a remarkable Alberta success story. If you're thinking of investing in your home, in particular your front or backyard or both this summer, this is the perfect time of year to get in touch with Eden Landscaping. They bring outdoor spaces to life. The process starts with a conversation. Their design team gets to work. I can tell you about this with authority because we've been through the process ourselves. You'll get a 3D rendering of your project. You're talking budget throughout and then a timeline. They finished ours with complete satisfaction. Honestly, totally reinvented our backyard and we're absolutely thrilled. And they did it on budget, too. They're great listeners at Eden Landscaping. Let them prove it to you when you schedule a chat at landscapeedmonton.ca. And if your home improvement is going to be more on the inside this year, whether you know what you're looking for when it comes to getting organized, when it comes to decluttering, or whether you could, well, use a little help, it all starts with a free design consultation at California Closets. They have overhauled bedrooms, walk-in closets, reach-in closets, workspaces, living areas, storage rooms, garages. They do it all, whether it's your laundry room, your living room, or maybe it's, I don't know, turning that home office into a guest room so you can finally invite your friends over, those out-of-towners that have always been promising to visit. They do beautiful Murphy beds at California Closets. The consultation's free, and you can request that when you visit their website, californiaclosets.ca. Sarah Lariniak, our guest, joining us live uh, from The Economist uh, offices in London, where she's working just back from Ukraine. What's it like for you? You, you open this uh, 
interview telling us that you're doing this because it's personal. Your family has a personal connection uh, to Ukraine. Uh, is it an emotional experience? Uh, is your heart heavy when you leave? Can, can we get personal about the experience for you? Yeah, sure. Um, I would say uh, I've used those exact words to to friends and to people who I discuss these things with. Um, heavy heart is absolutely what it is, especially right now. I would say throughout this conflict, I've, I've met a number of people who have absolutely inspired me in ways I, I never would have imagined. Um, but seeing some of those people that I never imagined losing hope, losing hope now, I mean, it's gutting. It's gutting to see that they feel abandoned. And for me to be able to leave that circumstance and go back and live my life, I feel a great amount of guilt. They don't have that opportunity. I asked one person, I was like, well, if you could do anything, what would you do? And they were like, I just would take back control of the decisions in my life because they don't have that anymore. Wow. And to start caring about people, you know, you meet them again and again, and you kind of see this war through snippets of their life. Like, that's incredibly difficult to just, you know, feel like there's nothing you can do to really help. I can tell the stories, but quite frankly, people are listening less and less. Why do you think that is? Like, do, do, have you sort of, you, you've, there's been enough time here that we can evaluate our, like when I say collectively, our thought process mm -hmm. and how we viewed the mm -hmm. war. And, and I remember like everybody just kind of had that hell yeah, like, you know, Russia, yeah. you know, Russia knocked on the wrong door and uh, they underestimated Ukraine. And this is going to, you know, David is going to beat Goliath and, and everyone, you know, just thought it was great. And they've got this movie star for a president and he's and he's like, yeah. you know, he's he's popping up in Washington, D.C. or he's meeting with President Biden or, you know, and I mean, he's wearing his fatigues and everybody's, you know, you know what I mean? And the car, the Ukraine car mm -hmm. flags were everywhere and people were putting Ukraine stickers on their hockey helmets and like everybody and then you know time passes and and humans do what humans do and and we have short attention spans and other crises happen and and you know what i mean um like when you look back at how we collectively viewed this war a year or two ago how do you how do you analyze that in many ways i think that people actually paid attention to ukraine for much longer than they pay attention to most conflicts there's many conflicts going on in the world right now and i think that we carry too much weight when we have to look at it directly hmm. it's hard it's overwhelming and and i think that we can only live with it for so long and i think that maybe because of how the war in ukraine was portrayed at the beginning it made it more palatable because it was that ferocity that bravery that you can go f yourself kind of attitude uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and it, it it's still there, right? Like I'm talking about hope slipping away. No one here is talking about like, oh, well, maybe we should just give in to the Russians now. Like no one is saying that. They just feel abandoned and alone. And like this will be their life forever. Mm. Um, so that ferocity, that bravery is still there. It's just not got the same oomph anymore. But as you know, a journalist, it's hard to make the story different every day. Um, I, I've done that where I do, you know, TV hits for different organizations. And it's hard to say something different from day to day when things say so similar. However, it's it's our it's our duty to look. Um, this is a war that's on the edge of Europe. And, you know, the risk of what Vladimir Putin says could happen from here. It, it, like it's it's enormous for us to look away is irresponsible. Uh, we're going to link to your uh, audio documentary that aired on The Current with Matt Galloway today, uh, the day that we're speaking. This is February 29th of 2024. Uh, people can check the show notes for that if they want to listen to it directly. Uh, you, you've described it as the next war, sexual violence in mm -hmm. Ukraine. 
I can't say that I've seen a lot of reporting on this, which is yet another testament to what you're doing. Um, can you help us understand what's happening? Yeah, and I will give a brief shout out to the International Women's uh, Media Foundation because I was only able to do that level of in-depth reporting because they gave me a grant to spend a month in Ukraine um, really looking for those stories because they're not told a lot because it's very difficult to find the people willing to talk about, you know, having been raped or having been held in captivity. And I managed to find two individuals uh, in, to tell that story. One of them, um, who we call Daria in the piece, was held captive in early 2022 and she um, was raped and she experienced being held captive alongside other people. And she talks about what that experience was like. And it was, I guess I hoped that the story would have more hope in it. Um, however, seeing her pain, seeing how raw it was, it was hard to walk away from that conversation with her and think, oh, one day she's going to be okay. She's a very shattered human being. And I hope that she finds ways to heal. I met her through a psychologist that works for the United Nations. And so she's working with mental health supporters, but can they un undo the things that she's seen? She told me that she wished she'd had, she died sometimes because she can't unsee the things she saw. And her own rape wasn't actually what bothered her the most because oh. she watched things happen to children that she can't unsee and unhear and yeah she she said she wished she had died on the other side we did see some hope in that documentary because i also met a man named Oleksi, and he um he was held captive by russian soldiers in uh 2016 2017 when this was a much smaller war and he's been trying to advocate publicly about the stigmatization around sexual violence particularly in his case for men, because any soldier who would have been held captive, he says, um, would have had some of the same experiences that he did, particularly involving, sorry, I should have done a trigger warning on this one. Um, this is very bleak stuff, um, but he was electrocuted in his genitals. And this is a very common practice as was founded by the United Nations in many, many interviews that they conducted. And he talks about how society is not ready to embrace men or women who have experienced this kind of trauma because it's just too horrific. And a human rights lawyer I spoke with said that this is why it's used, why sexual violence is a part of war, is because it divides communities long after the violence has taken place. Uh, I appreciate you sharing. I mean, this, this is the type of stuff that I think that, that people need to understand is happening around the world. The psychological, the residual psychological impact and trauma from these wars. I mean, I think of, um, you know, I mean, we even talk sexual violence, what happened in Israel, what's been happening in Gaza. You talk about the trauma yeah. that thousands, that millions of people uh, will experience. And this will be generational. Um, I'm not saying anything profound here or anything new. Uh, I'm just mm -hmm. having your storytelling settle with me and understanding the magnitude of what's happening. Um, I'm grateful that you're there to tell these stories. I can't imagine the heavy lifting that you've done uh, in doing so. And I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, a question from our live chat, Sarah, before we go. It's an interesting one from Dwayne, who wonders if you have an opinion on what may happen to other neighboring countries. He says, like Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, uh, Czechia, Poland. Uh, he wonders how you think the war, uh, Russia's war in Ukraine may affect them. What would you say to Dwayne? I would say that it's not my place to have an opinion on what will happen to them, but I will say that opinion polling and all those um, places show that the people who live there believe that they are at great risk of, of Russian aggression as well. And so I would say that they're concerned. Um, we ignored Ukrainians for 10 years 
while they said that no, Vladimir Putin will come after us, Russian President Vladimir Putin will come after us. And then he did. And we were all like, oh, my goodness, how how could we have seen that coming? Um, the Ukrainians told us and the people in those neighboring countries are saying the same thing. He's going to come for us. He has said the same thing. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said that he'd like to see, you know, the reformation of the great Russian Federation. So like, not for me to say what I think will happen, but I think we would be ignorant to think that this is the end of what Putin has in store for the world. Very well said. Sarah Lorenik joining us um, from her regular place of employee, The Economist. But of course, she has gone out at her own expense, at her own risk uh, to tell the stories in Ukraine. Sarah, I'm happy to let you know that uh, thanks to our Real Talk patrons, our Patreon supporters, uh, we're happy to make a contribution to your journalism um, and we're grateful for your availability. Thank you for making time for us today. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. I really appreciate it. You got it. Uh, You can follow Sarah uh, on Instagram and on Twitter. And of course, we'll link in the show notes to to her uh, audio documentary that aired today on The Current. Powerful stuff, man. I, I saw uh, Lauren. I appreciated this in the chat. I know that the chat can go sideways sometimes and, and people, um, you know, whatever. What can I say? They spar uh, in the chat. But I saw Lauren in there saying this is a somber interview that deserves no distractions. And uh, I felt like that was very well said there. Uh, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. You know, you talk about the short attention span that the world has and you can't blame people you know we're uh, 35 minutes into this episode we haven't talked about you know the alberta budgets coming out today uh we'll have an episode dedicated to that a real talk roundtable tomorrow that'll be our march 1st episode of real talk if you want to dig into that there's other stories that we're not covering not talking about right now um there's evidence of i i mean you know exactly what we're talking about here and feedback with our interview with prime minister trudeau we had people write in a lot of people write in you know uh people saying well, how did you not talk to him about the the arrive can app thing how did you not talk to him about canada's commitment in ukraine how did you not ask the prime minister about what's happening in gaza right now how did it but you get it right like i guess kind of the, the response to that is fair point what would you have pulled out what, what should we have not talked to him about instead of talking about that? You know, there's there's so much ground to cover. And on this show, we endeavor to do what we can to talk to the people that are right there, the, the people that are seeing these things happen firsthand. And and what a powerful storyteller Sarah is. I, I want to thank our Real Talk patrons for making that interview possible. It's just another way uh, that you're contributing to increasing the depth and the substance and the quality of the journalism and the storytelling that happens right here on Real Talk. If you'd like to support us uh, by making a monthly contribution on Patreon, just go to our website, ryanjesperson.com, and you can click on Connect. Uh, You can also find the link directly in the show notes. Um, Real Talk doesn't happen without our sponsors, and that includes the family-owned business that is Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food. In just a second, we're going to get to your emails on a few of our past episodes. But first, I wanted to tell you about their new partnership, a new line of raw pet food. Uh, They've partnered with The Complete Canine. Uh, You can find it by checking out the shop now link at granddog.ca. This is an Alberta-based raw pet food manufacturer that offers food made in a human-grade, federally inspected facility. They are literally uh, one of the only raw food manufacturers in the province that can make that claim. Uh, Why is that a big deal? Because all the ingredients that your dog or cat are going to be enjoying are sourced from nationwide, federally licensed and inspected facilities. They've got a ton of protein options that you can choose from, including beef, chicken, kangaroo, duck, perfect for pets with diet sensitivities. Uh, Their raw food specialists also at Grand Dog are available via phone or email to answer any and all questions you might have about switching your dog or cat to a raw food diet. 
If you're an engineer working in Canada or maybe even internationally and you're looking for a new opportunity, you want to work somewhere, be part of a team that's going to help you reach your true potential, may we recommend a quick visit to apexautomation.ca. Their main expertise is industrial control systems, engineering, and software development solutions for any industrial process. It could be server cabinet design and fabrication, drafting services, process engineering, electrical and instrumentation engineering, you name it. If you've got experience in these fields, working in Canada's energy industry, working in shipping, working in mining, you name it, Apex is automating it and they're looking to grow their team. Check out the careers link today at apexautomation.ca. You know, this studio right here where we do this show from every single day was built by the amazing team at Complete Care Restoration. They came into a hundred year old building, solved a few problems for us, including a nasty water leak. Can't have that over electronics to say the least. And we watched them work from day one to the finished process, by the way, ahead of schedule and under budget. The thing that jumped out to us the most, they treated this place like it was their own. Every single day, they proved to us that they valued the investment that we were making working with them. If you, heaven forbid, experience flooding, fire, you find black mold, you discover asbestos on your property, contact Complete Care Restoration at completecarerestoration.ca. And a shout out to our friends at Kubi Renewable Energy. It's been a huge year for the team at Kubi that can now officially say they're Western Canada's busiest solar installers. That means that they are always hiring. If you're listening to this from BC, you'd always want it to maybe move to Kamloops. If you're in Southern Alberta, maybe you'd fancy living in Lethbridge. What about Calgary? What about Edmonton? Kubi is growing their team of apprentices, journey person electricians salespeople, hr folks office managers you name it if you want to be part of canada's green energy revolution i recommend you take a second to check out the careers link make sure you get that resume submitted via kubienergy.ca we had a chance to sit down uh with an absolute it's okay to call people firecrackers, right? Sure. I think how do you just a ball of energy? How do you how do you describe Jody <laughs> Callahue Stonehouse? I yeah. don't know. She came in here yesterday, the first term, we called her a rookie. I don't know if she liked it. The first term MLA out of Edmonton Rutherford. She's the first First Nations woman ever elected to the Alberta legislature, if you can believe it. And she is the fourth uh, candidate to throw their name into the ring for the Alberta NDP leadership. And for about a half an hour, uh, she gave us uh, a peek into what the province would look like if she was premier. She gave us her arguments on what she thinks the NDP needs to prioritize, what she would do differently uh, from Rachel Notley, uh, and basically where she thinks that Rachel Notley nailed it. It was a captivating and compelling conversation, a hilarious conversation. She's officially the first Alberta NDP leadership candidate to drop an F-bomb in her interview with us, which I thought was well-timed. Uh, but to, before we get to this email from Gabriel, who wrote in, inspired by Jody, uh, for those of you that may not have seen the interview, here's a quick highlight. What does it mean to you 
to be a First Nations woman in that Alberta legislature representing. I mean, you're representing your constituents in Edmonton Rutherford, but it feels like you're representing a lot more people than that. Well, you know, the beautiful thing about our governance model, like Wakotu and Sagitu and Watasko, and these are all about peace, respect, and how we relate with each other, how we relate with the land, the water. And those are all fundamental principles that I bring with me as a politician. And it's essentially how do we live our lives the best way possible in relation to all things, our relationships. And so when we look at economics, we have got to we have got to do better in Alberta. We need to put ourselves back in the competitive market around the world. Renewables is hurting. We've lost millions and millions of dollars in investment. We have destabilized our economy. And so when I think about myself as a First Nations woman looking at the economics, we know we have complex issues, social issues that need to be fixed, but it's going to be the economic horse that pulls that social cart. I like that. The economic horse that pulls the social cart. Uh, we got a, a quick note from Real Talker Graham, who is listening in. He says, after that interview, I think I might have to go buy myself an Alberta NDP membership. Uh, Graham, I wanted you to know that even though that's just one person, you're just one person. I know that feedback would mean a lot to her, so we actually passed your message along to Jody for a little encouragement for her. She's the underdog in this race, and she knows it. Gabriel wrote in uh, to talk at ryanjesperson.com, says, uh, Jespo, great episode on the 28th of February. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there. I'm going to lean out and say that after that awesome interview with Jody Callahue-Stonehouse, Nahed Nenshi does not need to run in the Alberta NDP leadership race, says there's already four pretty amazing candidates. Uh, what I'd wager Nenshi needs to do, says Gabe, is take on the leadership of the federal NDP. I'm unsure that a Justin Trudeau on fire 100% for the next 18 months or so will sway enough folks away from the just anyone but crowd. Uh, Jagmeet Singh has no chance of making inroads as a leader, says Gabe. The current federal NDP is boring, lackluster, and stands for nothing. I think that, I don't know about that. They'd probably take issue. They'd probably say they got the dental care plan done. They're working on pharmacare. But, but I'll take your point. He says, I think with a bomber policy platform, you could get behind the labor movement, put out a real climate action plan. He says, can you imagine Pierre Polyev having to deal with a minority government? Anyway, says Gabe, onwards. Alberta's got this myth of being this economic engine of Canada, but the liabilities of the oil and gas industry today are already in the hundreds of billions. And who do you think is going to get fucked with that bill, wonders Gabe. Albertans? Uh-uh. He says, the entire country. The Liberals bought a pipeline for Alberta that the entire country is paying for, and we're all inevitably going to get fucked by the liabilities that no company or the Alberta Sovereign Wealth Fund is going to pay for. Uh, your guest yesterday, Kevin Krausert, who felt insulted with his little feelings, can shove those feelings. Uh, more on that in just a second. Gabe says this is an engine on fire and it's sucking all the water away from people who need it to live and making profits for shareholders that don't give a shit about our province or this country. The pathway alliance to hell, says Gabe. OK, he says. And finally, regarding your ask for Pierre Poliev to come on the show, he's never going to do it. Gabe says, I don't have a lot of money to bet with, but I would. He says, why? Because in the vein of conservative leaders all across the country, Pierre is not running on a platform of anything. Pierre is managed. And when he slips away from behind that management, he is inevitably a thin-skinned asshole. This is Gabe talking. He says, what do the conservatives have to offer actually? 
Uh, Doug Ford won in Ontario by not running on anything. He just stayed away from media. His MPs stayed away. They didn't debate anything. And the imploding of the other parties gave him like 18% of the population and a win. Uh, Danielle Smith was heavily managed throughout her campaign and didn't openly front any of the shit that she's now embroiling the province in. Uh, Danielle Smith on this show, March 13th, by the way, mark it on your calendar. Uh, he says there's a playbook here and Pierre is playing it from those same pages. But maybe it doesn't even matter. It works, right? I'm sure that Charles Adler will bellyache some more about how Canadians aren't stupid, but currently a huge swath of them are saying they vote for a lifelong political suit who can't help but spew vindictive shit out of his mouth if he's not salivating with a large piece of old wood or chatting with Rex Murphy. Gabe signs off. Big love to Johnny. So there you you. go. That from Gabe. Thanks, pal. We talked about the Danger Cats comedy group yesterday. If if you're unfamiliar with them, and most of you probably are, it's a a, a comedy group out of Alberta uh, known for controversial material. They're not the first. They won't be the last. Uh, You know, they joke about residential schools. They put out a T-shirt, selling a T-shirt on their website, making light of Robert Picton, the serial killer. You get the idea. And so a comedy house uh, in uh, New Westminster, B.C., owned by Rick Bronson, uh, who's a comedy club owner across North America, as a matter of fact, including right here in Edmonton. Rick happens to be a personal friend of mine, has canceled the Danger Cats appearance coming up in March in B.C. Uh, The appearance at that comedy club, by the way, like a stone's throw from where Robert Picton would snag his victims to give you a sense. I mean, this is happening right where that tragedy happened. More than 50 missing and murdered indigenous women. The Danger Cats are calling out Bronson in the comedy club. They're calling him a pussy. They say that he's weak. Uh, They're saying that they're being canceled. I went off on this at length in yesterday's show, February 28th, if you want to hear it, about a 12-minute rant. It prompted Christy to write in. She says, Jespo, so the Danger Cat shirts featuring Robert Picton, like what purpose were those meant to serve? Like were the proceeds of the shirts going to support victims of sex trafficking or sexual assault? Uh, Were they going to prevent more vulnerable young women from being forced into the type of sex work that would put them into a situation like like winding up on Picton's farm? Uh, Because the only acceptable reason that I can think of to produce shirts like that, and it's only barely acceptable, would be wrenching money from the hands of those who find childish shit like that edgy and then handing it straight to the people that are harmed by those attitudes. Otherwise, what? Are they trying to like own the libs? Like, are they trying to make money literally at the expense of the women that Picton murdered and their families, the surviving families? Because if they'd never been murdered, there's no fucking joke, right? Trying to celebrate Robert Picton somehow to get canceled so they can climb up the cross that they built and crucify themselves? It boggles the mind, says Christy. And she says, and I don't believe for one second that they were ever sending money from that shirt over to help Ukraine. I refuse to even entertain the idea. That's what they're saying, by the way. She says that's them scrambling to cover their asses after the fact, and it's not working. Christy says the chasm between being offensive for the sake of being offensive or or whatever sake they claim, I don't know, and then deliberately using offense and shock to make and illustrate a larger point about some cultural state of affairs makes the Mariana Trench look like a toddler's sandbox. It's not weak. You're not a pussy if you set boundaries on what you will and will not support and entertain as acceptable. If you showed up at my door wearing that shirt, I would ask you to leave and take your shirt with you because it's my house. Like, why is this so difficult to understand? That from Christy. That's a great email. 
I wanted to let you know, by the way, that we're also going to be talking to Andrea Heinz uh, coming up on March 19th uh, on uh, Real Talk. She's just got a book out. Uh, Andrea was a, a sex worker for many years, um, and she's moved on. She's got a very interesting perspective. She's producing a documentary. She's got a book out on the sex trade in Canada, and in particular on John's on people who hire sex workers. I think it's going to be a very powerful episode. That's coming up. Andrea Heinz on Real Talk on March 19th. We spoke with Kevin Krausert on the show on February 28th. That was yesterday. If you listen every day, boy, do we ever appreciate you. Kevin is co-founder and CEO of a company called Avatar Innovations. And they're doing a lot of work in the oil sands and in Alberta's energy industry uh, working to obviously generate business, generate revenue, but focus on innovation. Uh, if you want to check out more about what they do, I encourage you to check out our February 28th episode of Real Talk. It prompted a couple of emails from Ronnie and Gerald, and I want to get to those in just a bit. But first, uh, if you missed our conversation with Kevin Krausert, he was here responding to what the prime minister said on Real Talk on February 21st, a week later. And here's a portion of Kevin's take. He's well aware of the work that we're doing at Avatar. And it's not just words right, it's action. And a thousand alumni, portfolio of 42 energy transition technologies sponsored by oil and gas in various stages of development. Uh, Alberta's first energy transition venture capital fund was Synovus as our lead uh, investor. Uh, he's well aware of, of these initiatives. Um, what I understood from his comments is I think he's trying to find a, a simple excuse to why we're not running faster on major emissions reduction capital projects, such as hydrogen, carbon capture, uh, biofuels. The reality is the reason we're not moving faster on these isn't because of a willingness from the industry or an eagerness. It's in fact the exact office. It's finding the right investment climate to be able to make these investment decisions. So when I hear him say, well, it's time for government to get out of the way and allow the province to start innovating and building, um, you know, I would I would res respectfully say there's a number of key pieces that are in his court um, that can be done to ensure these projects go forward. And he goes on and he talks about the three key things that he thinks that the federal government needs to do. Uh, to spur on innovation in the oil sands. You can check out the full interview uh, wherever you get your podcasts, obviously on YouTube as well. Ronnie writes in and says, Jess, I thought it was mighty suspicious that your guest, Kevin Krauser, mentioned uh, a tax credit, uh, says as if like a heavily, heavily subsidized industry has yet another tax credit uh, to help them pay less to have higher profits. Uh, he says, I, feel, I felt like your guest was was basically like stammering out answers and seemed very unsurprised to hear uh, an executive from industry wash his hands of responsibility. Net zero can't wait uh, for another 26 years. Climate change is going to get worse and worse. And I fear by the time we all eventually do get to net zero, that irreversible damage will be done. If we've not already gotten to that point, there's a lot of naive people walking around says ronnie the prime minister thinks that it'd be easy to get things done if companies or provincial governments get out of the way though it won't be the industry thinks that all the government has to do is provide yet more carve outs in the form of tax credits to fuel innovation i'm not denying that industry hasn't made noticeable strides toward decarbonization but i also see record profits and i'm not sure how the avatar ceo can reconcile that glaringly obvious disconnect I think I said the wrong date, by the way. The interview was the 27th of February. Uh, Ronnie says, solid interview, solid questions with grossly unsatisfactory answers. 
Gerald also wrote in and said, your talk with Kevin Krauser was interesting to me, but I also found it odd that he's being put forward to rebut Trudeau when Trudeau literally said that there's incredible innovation in Alberta and that we need to harness it into the future. So to me, I heard Justin saying we want more companies like Kevin's and fewer companies that lay people off the moment they receive royalty reductions like what happened previously. I did hear a few contradicting points, though, says Gerald. Like, they said he can't staff up, and then literally two minutes later, in response to questions from the YouTube live chat, defending layoffs to remain financially viable to shareholders, I, I think in the end, that's truly the point that Trudeau was making, uh, that we need to do more to ensure that we don't have workers laid off when workers are needed in other areas. We need to better transition them. The prime minister did touch on that. Gerald says, I actually think that Kevin will likely be a valuable voice in helping Canada and Alberta grow in the future. But I don't think he said anything that the prime minister didn't, regardless of the single grenade he threw. Uh, he's talking about Trudeau. He actually praised Alberta innovation many times. In the meantime, Kevin kept talking about investors and confidence. And I can't think of anything that the feds have done to chill investment more than Danielle Smith's solar and wind moratorium. And now, if I understand it correctly, any green tech projects need to be paired with new traditional oil and gas investments. We're going to dig into that, by the way. The Alberta government has announced new policy as this moratorium is being lifted. Gerald says, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but isn't that exactly the government getting in the way, just like the prime minister was talking about? Gerald says, I do think Kevin's comments about proper tax credits and doing what you really say are valuable. So the prime minister said they want to let Alberta innovate. I hope we get a lot of Kevin's innovating but will danielle let them that from gerald who's on a first name basis with all of them i love that gerald that email in to talk at ryanjesperson.com we want your feedback we invite your feedback we value your feedback and of course we uh, especially on weeks like this our inbox has been bonkers our replies have been bonkers uh, following the trudeau interview on the 21st of february uh, we want to make sure that we leave time almost every single episode, if not every single episode of Real Talk, to hand the microphone, so to speak, over to you so you can have your say and so we can bring this audience together, better understand the different perspectives of the people that make Real Talk a part of their daily routine. Boy, do we ever appreciate you. Coming up on Friday's show, that'll be the 1st of March. I'm going to be joined in studio uh, by some experts when it comes to finances, when it comes to budgets, when it comes to understanding what billions and billions of dollars mean to us everyday folks uh, doug griffiths former municipal affairs minister now the ceo of the edmonton chamber of commerce punita mcbrien the ceo of the edmonton downtown business association and we're holding out hope for a surprise guest but i don't want to jinx it you'll have to tune in to find out real talk is hosted by ryan jesperson Executive Producer, Josh Dunford. Technical Producer, John Hicks. General Manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account Coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepard. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandy Morin, Ann Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjasperson.com. 